Thanks for joining us as we explore the good news of Jesus and his kingdom in the Gospel of Mark. For discussion guides and details about how to join us on Sundays, please visit fairoaks.org. Well, if you have your Bibles, we are continuing on in the series. Pastor Chad's message last week was one of my favorite in all the Bible in in, uh, Mark chapter 4. And today, we're going to be venturing on into Mark 5, the story of the Gerasene demoniac. And while you're turning there, I just want you to know, um, it's very humbling to come and speaking to a group of people like yourself, be invited to do so. And I notice as I get older, I have more and more humbling experiences, and I had one Recently, Carla and I did, when we were sitting at our table at our house playing Bananagrams with two of our grandsons, Levi and Owen, who are 11 and 9. Bananagrams, if you don't know what it is, it's a game where it's kind of like Scrabble without a board. And so you dump all the letters out and you say go and you make it many words as fast as you can. So our 11-year-old grandson, Levi, in the midst of this go, he's spelling out this stuff and he says to Carla and me, he goes, Gaga, Pampa, is linguistics a word? And I stopped and looked down, and I had dog, toy, cat. And I look over at him. He's got linguistics spelled out. And I looked at mine again, and I said, no, linguistics is not a word. (laughs) It's very humbling when your 11-year-old is spelling words like this, and you're struggling with dog and cat. But anyway, it's humbling being here today. Thanks for letting us come. You know, in this section of Mark, Jesus is immersing these disciples in lessons about who he is. Because these are the guys that are going to go out and carry the message. And it isn't just about what Jesus has done, it's about who Jesus is. And that's the centerpiece of these lessons. Jesus wanted them to know he is Lord. Last week you heard a wonderful message, he's Lord of the storms. Today, we're going to see he's Lord of every realm, the spirit realm and the human realm. So he tells the disciples to get in a boat. They go across the sea, encounter a terrible storm. They ask a powerful question, who is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? Jesus said, why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? And they went across the lake, verse 1, to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained, hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. And then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. 
The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with them. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Father, this is scary stuff sometimes. We talk about demons and Satan and possessions and all that stuff. So often we get confused about even who angels are and who Satan is and what the spirit world is like. And then we wonder how a man could be in such a state living among tombs, crying out day and night, cutting himself, being destroyed by the demons that possessed him. God, what is this about? How does this happen? What is it you were trying to show the disciples as you taught them that you're a Lord over every realm? Help us today, Lord. We live in a world that Satan loves to work in and destroy, but you are the Lord who reigns over it all. So help us today, God, that our faith will be strengthened too. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there are times when it's good for us to learn that our lives are in the hands of someone you can really trust. Someone who knows what they're doing. Someone who cares. Someone you can believe can handle things, no matter how out of control they may get. You know, the first time I ever flew in a small plane was in Seattle with a guy I'd come to know by the name of Chuck. He was a retired lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. He invited me to go flying with him, and to be honest, I was a little reluctant. I'd only been in a commercial airliner a few times, and uh, I was a little reluctant to get into this small four-seater plane. But he talked me into it, and was I ever glad he did, because... We took off from a little airport there near Seattle, and it was gorgeous to see Puget Sound from the air. So when he asked me to go the second time, I was glad, but I was totally unprepared for what he had in mind. He taxis out to the head of the runway, and he says, Larry, today you're going to fly this plane. I said, what? He said, you're, you're going to fly this plane today. You're going to take us off. You're going to take us up over those trees down there, and you're going to fly this plane. I said, man, I, I, I can't do that. He said, well, I'm going to show you what to do. When I give you the word, he said, you steer with your feet, just keep the plane on that center line, push the throttle in to gain speed, and when I tell you, you slowly pull back on that wheel in front of you, and we're going to go right up in the air. I said, okay. Sitting there waiting for the tower, he gives the clearance. My heart's beating 350 beats a minute. He's, we slide that throttle in, that plane starts to move, and I'm trying to steer with my feet. I'm, I can only imagine what it must have looked like for people watching. We sped down the runway, and he said, okay, now, and I start pulling back, and we went up over those trees. 
wow, what an experience. And we traveled all around. He let me fly all over the place, showed me how to do it. When it was time to come home, he guided me back. I lined us up in the air with the runway, and he goes, I'll take it from here. (laughs) Smart man. Because landing a plane is very different than taking one off. So from every time after that, when he asked me to go, I was always so willing, and my fear began to dissipate. Because I could see that he was a guy who really knew what he was doing. He was in control the whole time, even when I thought I was flying. And I learned over time that I could trust that he knew what he was doing, and he cared for me. You know, in a, in a greater degree... That's what the disciples were experiencing with Jesus in the boat on their way to the Gerasenes. They were learning little by little that this Jesus was one who was fully in control, that they could trust him in every situation, and that no matter what come up, he could handle it. And he would do the right thing. And he was always there with them. So they get in a boat, they encounter a raging hurricane, and they learn that he's Lord of the storms. They cross the lake in this encounter with a demon-possessed man, and they're about to learn that he was the Lord of every realm, of the spirit and of the human plane. A realm is like a dominion, a region, or a sphere of influence, and Jesus is the Lord of every sphere of influence, every domain, every realm. Jesus had a kingdom appointment in the Gentile region of the Gerasenes with a man whose life had been taken over by demons. And so it says in verse 1, They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones." The Gerasenes, or the Gadarenes, as some would call it, depending on whether you're referring to the region of the Gerasenes or the the city of Gadara, which was nearby, it was a Gentile region on the southeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was also known as part of the Decapolis, or the Ten Cities. It was a strongly Gentile region east of the Jordan. The people were there raised large herds of pigs. They did it for meat, but they also did it for their economy. They sold them. So when we read in verse 2, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. It says a man. It's interesting. Matthew's gospel says it was two men. It was probably more than two. It was a region where demonic strongholds had been established. People were living in those tombs. Mark and Luke refer only to one man. It's probably because... Mark and Luke are focusing on the one guy who, as we'll see later, was to have a powerful impact on the whole region. The tombs the man lived in were on a hill or a cliff. If you went there, there's a, there's a shoreline on the southeast part, and then it goes up about 100 yards away up a cliff, and there's a bunch of tombs on the top. That's where this guy was living. And the demon-possessed man, when he sees Jesus coming and landing on the shore, he runs down the bank down the hill, and he confronts him. And the disciples were about to learn another very important lesson about Jesus' reign. You know, my father-in-law, Cully Olson, who uh, has preached here at Fair Oaks many, many times, he used to preach a series of messages from Mark 4 and 5. I used to love it when he would do this. He would call the series, Jesus is Lord. 
And he would talk about Jesus is Lord of the deeps, Lord over the waters. He's Lord over the demons. He's Lord over disease as he heals a lady later on who is held by that disease for 12 years. And then he used to preach about he's Lord over death as Jesus raised that 12-year-old girl. But I used to love the way my father-in-law would talk about he's the Lord and the way he would say it because you knew that he knew that and he meant that. And that's what these disciples were about to learn. Jesus is Lord over all. And one of the things Mark learned from Peter who gave him a lot of that information for this gospel was that we can trust that Jesus is Lord and reigns over every realm. Well, what can we learn along with the disciples? He's Lord over the spirit realm and he's Lord over the human realm. Jesus demonstrated that he's Lord over the spirit realm. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, and when, the, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Now, I'm reading this over and over because there's so many details you don't want to miss. This man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. You know, in the early 70s, I was living in Fort Worth, Texas. I was working for a company there. I was single, and I wasn't a Christian. Several of my friends were going to see a popular movie in the theaters at that time called The Exorcist. It's a movie about a young girl who becomes demon-possessed and about the priest who is trying to exercise or get that demon cast out. People, I don't know if you've ever seen it. I hope you haven't. I don't recommend it. It's a terrifying movie. That movie traumatized me. I had never heard of demon possession. I didn't even know anything about Satan. I didn't know anything about demons. And I'm watching this graphic possession portrayed on a screen. I was traumatized by this. I had nightmares for, for days. And I, I had so many questions. I had never been exposed to this stuff. Is Satan real? I mean, does this stuff really happen? Do I need to be afraid? How does that happen? Can these people really come with a cross and cast out these demons? I had so many questions, and I had nowhere to turn for answers. I didn't know a single Christian who could help me. You see, that's where many people are today when it comes to the whole subject of Satan and demons and angels. They don't know what to make of it. Many times people think angels are human beings that become angels when they die. It's not true. Satan and the angels and the demons are such a mystery to most people. Satan and demons are either 
a total mystery to people, or he's that cute little red cherub with the mustache and the horns and the pointy tail that causes people to do naughty things. Or to some extremes, he's worshipped and served as the most powerful force on earth. Others don't think he exists at all. Others think that Satan and demons are only impersonal expressions of the concept of evil. Satan would never love it more than if that's all you thought. He was just a concept of evil. But God's word gives us a clear and accurate view of Satan and the demonic spirits. And there's not time today to do a thorough study on angels, Satan, and demons. It's a whole theology of angelology, it's called. And frankly, that's not even the primary point of this text. The point is not about the demons. But it's important to get a few biblical facts to better understand Jesus' reign over Satan and demons in the spirit world. Satan was a created angel who was given the name Lucifer. Created by God as part of the angelic host, along with all the angels, who eventually, some of whom, became demons. Angels were created to be worshiping servant messengers of God. Angels and demons are incorporeal beings. That means they are primarily spiritual. But they have, they have the ability to take on physical form. And they can also choose to live in people. They can live in animals. They're not limited to space and time. Satan was created as the highest and most beautiful angel. And his glory and his beauty must be spectacular. That little image people get of the little horned guy with the red suit and the pointy tail and the mustache, that wouldn't convince anybody of his glory. Satan was the most beautiful, created angel. His physical beauty and magnificence must still today be staggering for those who have seen him in all of that glory. To make a long story short, his beauty and his position led to pride, that led to his desire to be as God. So he led a rebellion in heaven against God. And if we understand the scriptures correctly, about a third of the angelic host, millions of them, were deceived or willingly joined his rebellion. And they obviously lost, and they were cast from heaven to earth. He wanted to be as God. Isn't it interesting? He used that same lie when he came to earth in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. You can be as God. It's the same lie he's still telling people today. You can be in charge of your own life. You can be as God. You don't have to have anybody ruling over you. You know this whole transgender thing that's going on? Amongst other things, do you realize that's one of the last human affronts to God to say, God, you aren't choosing my gender. I choose my gender. That, that whole thing is a satanic effort to get people to rebel against God's sovereignty to make us male and female. And God chooses that. We don't. So now, there are two classifications of angels. There are the elect or holy angels who are forever sealed in their loyalty to God. And then there are fallen or evil angels, also called demons or impure spirits, who are forever sealed in their sin, their rebellion, and their ultimate destruction. But for now, they live to oppose God and destroy all that belongs to God. Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He isn't omnipotent. He doesn't possess all power. And he isn't omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. Chances are you've never dealt with Satan personally. But one of the vast myriad of his demons who carry out his work and very often report back. Satan is an expert in human behavior. 
He's an expert in temptation. He's more powerful in his own being and being able to tempt people with lies and distractions. Satan spends most of his time accusing God and God's people while demons carry out his bidding. He hates God. He hates God's creation and especially human beings who have been made in his image. And he's seeking to destroy them with lies and deceptions. In fact, the Bible says that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And one of the great convicting things of my life was to learn that whenever my mouth lies, Satan is using my mouth to further his purpose and his kingdom. He seeks ultimately to destroy, to destroy everything that God has created. He seeks to destroy through lies, physical and mental attacks, arranging circumstances to oppose us, and even at times to the point of possession. And that's what was happening to this unfortunate man living in the tombs of the Gerasenes. Satan's demons had taken possession of his mind and body as their habitation. That's why it says in verse 3, this man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Thousands of demons had come to live in this man with the ultimate purpose of destroying him. That's why he was in torment. That's why he cried out day and night. That's why he kept cutting his physical body with stones. They were doing that to him. And ultimately, they would destroy and kill him. People tried to restrain this guy with irons and chains, but with superhuman strength, he would break those chains and irons. And he could not be subdued. People, you cannot subdue spiritual power like this with physical means. So it says in verse 6, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. The man and the demons saw Jesus coming from a distance. In fact, they were well aware of Jesus' impending arrival. Do you, do you remember in Luke's gospel, after the temptations in the wilderness, when Satan tried unsuccessfully to disqualify Jesus from the cross by getting him to act independently of God's will? Do you remember what Luke said as a detail at the end that the angels came to minister him? But what did Satan do? It said Satan left Jesus until an opportune time. Satan knew Jesus was heading to the demonic stronghold of the Gerasenes. That ferocious storm that had happened the night before, that may have been Satan's opportune time. We don't know who stirred up that storm, but if it was Satan, it was obvious he was trying to drown Jesus now physically while he lay exhausted in the back of a boat. But you see, Jesus is Lord of every realm. And when the disciples woke him, he calmed the storm with a word. He's the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of the storms. So the demonic man, filled with these demons, come running and fell on his knees in front of him. People, it wasn't an act of worship. Satan and the demons do not worship 
Jesus. Worship is an expression of worth. When we worship as Christians, we are to express to Jesus that he has ultimate worth in our lives. And it isn't just in the way we sing or coming to church on Sunday or carrying our Bibles. It's how we live every day of our lives and every moment and how we treat people and how we treat those around us and how we're engaged in God's work and how we're engaged in furthering his kingdom. By living all of those things, we are demonstrating that Jesus and no one or anything else has ultimate worth in our lives. The demons don't worship Jesus. They pay ultimate homage to Satan himself. This was not an act of worship. They fell down in front of Jesus. They know who he is. They respect his position and power, but they don't worship him. They know full well who he is. Do you remember in verse 7? They shouted. He shouted at the top of his voice. It's not the man speaking. These are the demons. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. You see, the man had never met Jesus. Jesus hadn't been to this demonic stronghold. He hadn't been to the Gentile region. The man had no idea who Jesus was, but the demons knew who he was because they had known him in all of his glory before, he was, before they were cast out of heaven. They were probably shocked now to see him coming in human form, but they knew who he was. You are Jesus, the son of the most high God. But still their rebellion continues. It's interesting, in verse 6, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted Jesus' identity and says in verse 8, for Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. You know what's interesting about that? That's written by Mark in the imperfect tense. And what that means is Jesus had said to him, in other words, implying that he had said it multiple times, come out. And they're still resisting. They're still rebelling, coming out of this man. And so Jesus commands them, identify yourself. What is your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A legion, a Roman legion, consisted of about 6,000 soldiers. Now, we have no idea how many demons were in this man. There were 2,000 pigs that were affected, but there could have been multiple demons in every pig. Demons don't take up space. They are spirit beings. Thousands can indwell a person or an animal. Which begs the question always, can demons possess a Christian? Can demons possess a true born-again follower of Jesus? I believe theologically, no. Because you see, if you are a true born-again follower of Jesus, you have the living Christ living in you. And the demon is not going to dwell there if Christ, who is Lord, is living in you. But Christians can be demonized or demon-influenced. They can be demon-harassed, even demon-led, if they're not careful. Especially if a person is living in sin and not in the power of the Holy Spirit, and not living a life glorifying to Jesus. You make yourself vulnerable to Satan himself, to the demonic host. Sometimes even godly people get harassed by the evil one. Trust me, people, if Satan would take on Jesus himself in the temptations in the wilderness, he's not afraid to tackle you or me. 
These demons through this man beg Jesus not to send them out of the area because they know he has the power to do it. Begged him. Literally put him under oath. The King James calls it prayed. In other words, they're saying, Jesus, swear to us, give us your word that you will not send us out of this area we have, where we have found such success. You see, they had a stronghold in that Gentile area where Jesus had not yet come to be worshipped and obeyed. And they didn't want to leave. So there was a herd of pigs nearby, 2,000 of them. A large herd of pigs, verse 11, was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. If you ever wondered where deviled ham came from, it's right here in the Bible. <laughs> Jesus was in total control. He gave them permission, and the demons took over the pigs, and they destroyed them. And the disciples learned firsthand Jesus is Lord over the spirit realm, even over Satan, demons, and evil. And God can use even Satan, demons, and evil to accomplish his good purpose. Or he can cast them out with a word into an eternal hell. The pigs, the farmers of the pigs, ran into the town and the countryside to tell everyone, you ain't going to believe what just happened down by the lake. You know that demoniac guy that we couldn't hold with chains and irons? He's been delivered. The townspeople came, it tells us in verse 14. When they came, verse 15, they came to Jesus. They saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. They were afraid. The townspeople were afraid and alarmed, and so they begged Jesus to leave their area. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't know who he was. But they were afraid of this kind of power. What do you do with a guy who can, with a word, deliver a man that they couldn't control with chains and irons? And if he could destroy a herd of pigs with a word, what more might he do even to them? It's quite a contrast, isn't it? The demons honor and respect Jesus and his authority because they know who he is. But the people of the town and the countryside fear and reject him because they don't know who he is. And apparently, unlike the disciples, they don't even ask, who is this? Their first response is, we want you to leave. Leave this place. You're destroying our livelihood. Which begs the question that the disciples asked after the storm is probably life's most important question. When they said to, to, to amongst themselves, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? You see, the demons knew, but they won't come to Jesus to be saved. But anyone who does come to Jesus and find out he is Lord of even the spirit realm, they can be saved. Now, folks, I don't know where all of you are today. I can't assume that you all are vibrant followers of Christ. I hope you are. 
But wherever you are, you ought to be answering life's, you ought to be asking life's most important question, who is this? Not just the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this that even the spirit world must obey him? The disciples learned that day that Jesus is Lord over every realm. He's Lord over the storms. He's Lord over the spirit world. But the real question today is, he, is he Lord for me? Is he Lord over me? Is he really the Lord of your life? Is he worshipped by you? Or is ours kind of a demonic faith? We know who he is, but we don't have him in the ultimate place of our life. You ask Jesus into your life, you follow him as Lord, and he will set you as free as he did this demoniac. I know because he did it for me. And he will come to reign in you, and he'll make you spiritually alive. And he will forgive your sins, and he'll bring you into relationship with God. And people, when you are living in relationship with God, you could sit in front of a terrifying movie now like The Exorcist, which I would never watch again, but if I did, I wouldn't be afraid anymore. Because you know what Jesus told me? Greater is he who is in you, Larry, than he who is in the world. We don't have to be afraid anymore. Because if you have Christ in your life, he is the Lord over the realm that Satan tries to get us to fear. Remember Jesus to the disciples? Why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? And not only realm of the spirit world, but Jesus demonstrated he's also Lord over the human realm. It says in verse 14, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. You know, as a pastor, uh, Pastor Chad and I will see this all the time. People come in with all kinds of hurts and all kinds of troubles because God doesn't spare us of all those things. He uses them, but he doesn't always spare us. And one of the things people always ask is, where is God and does he care? Where is God and does he care? Remember the question the disciples asked Jesus in the face of the terrible storm? Pastor Chad was talking about it last week. They woke him up from a sound sleep, and what did they want to know? What did they want to know? Don't you care? Don't you care if we drown? Pastor Chad reminded us last week that's often what we want to know in the midst of life's trials. Where is God and does he care? Well, the disciples were about to learn how much he cares, but even more, this demoniac was about to learn. You see, Jesus didn't tell the disciples to get into the boat and go across the lake simply to teach them more about who he was. That was a big part of it. But he wasn't going over to the other side of the lake just to confront the demons. He was going to see a man. 
A man who had been taken over by Satan's power and a man he cared about. A man he was going to set free. So he told disciples in chapter 4, verse 35, let's go over to the other side. And the disciples must have looked at each other in amazement. To the other side? Like to the southeast shore? We're going over to the Gerasenes? <laughs> the other side. Is that the other side you're talking about? That's a Gentile. We've never been over there, but boy, have we heard the stories of what happens over there. No, no, no. You, you, you can't be going over there. They'd say, man, we wouldn't go over there for a thousand shekels. And Jesus would say, neither would I. But I would go for one man that God cares about. So they go. And look what Jesus does for this man. In verse 15, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there. Look at verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed, twice Mark records it as Peter told the story, the man who had been demon-possessed. He wasn't anymore. He wasn't anymore. We don't know all the reasons why this guy was demon-possessed. We don't know what he was doing or how he was living that the demons decided we want to live in this guy. But whatever it was, the demons used their authority to enslave this man, and Jesus used his authority to set him free. And everyone who is still in sin is being held by the devil, captive to do his will. Do you remember what Paul wrote about this to Timothy in his last letter, 2 Timothy 2, verse 22? Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. People, it isn't enough just to be running away from evil. You've got to be pursuing something. You've got to be pursuing Christ and his righteousness in our lives. That's the Christian life. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Look at this. And they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. The Bible says, Paul told the Corinthians, that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. People, our enemies are not people. Our enemies are not people. Our enemy is the one who holds people captive to do his will. We have to start looking at humanity the way Jesus looks at humanity. That doesn't mean people don't do evil things. That doesn't mean we have to hug everybody and say, boy, I'm glad you're here. But these people are held captive when they're evil. That's why when Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, he said, finally be strong in the Lord, verse 10, and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against what? Not people's schemes, the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heaven, heavenly realms. Jesus cared about this man, held captive by the evil one, and he went to set him free. You know, I've always been touched by how much Jesus cared for people. Do a study sometime of all the people Jesus touched and the way he did it. Healing a 12-year-old girl, raising her from the dead, giving her back to her parents. What a moment that must have been. Raising the only son of a grieving widow and giving that son back to his mom. Helping a lame man who laid by a pool for 38 years, believing the angels stirred the water. If he could just be the first in, he'd be healed. And Jesus comes and says, you want to be healed? You don't need that water. All you need is me. You believe, take up your mat and go home. Remember the time he touched a leper? Don't miss the detail. Jesus touched the leper. I'll never forget the time when I was in Salt Lake City, I saw a homeless guy sitting rather distraught outside the wall of the Mormon temple. And I walked up to him and I simply said, look at me please and tell me your name. He said, I cannot remember the last time anyone asked me what my name was. People, Jesus knew people's names. He cared about where they were. He touched a leper and healed him. But it's what Jesus did for a mute and deaf man in Mark chapter 7. Coming up, Pastor Chad's eventually going to get here. In chapter 7, Jesus is back in the Decapolis, this whole area east of the Jordan. Mark 7, verse 31, Jesus leaves the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Decapolis. He's back in this Gentile region. And there are some people brought to him, a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, and he spit and touched the man's tongue, and he looked up to heaven with a deep sigh. This is the Jesus I follow. He's the one who pulls this man aside because he's not going to make a spectacle of him. He'd had that enough, done enough in his life. The guy that couldn't speak, the guy that can't hear, you know, everybody that points at. Jesus isn't going to do that. He pulls him aside. How do you tell a deaf man you're going to do something to his ears? Stick your fingers in there. How do you tell a man who can't speak, I'm going to do something for your tongue? But then Jesus looks up to heaven with a deep sigh. People, you, you need to know Jesus feels what you're going through. And you're not going through it for no purpose. So he looks up to heaven with a deep sigh. <sighs> Ears that don't work. Not supposed to be like this. Tongues that don't speak. It's not supposed to be like this. Ephatha. Be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. People, the focus is not on the man who was healed, the focus is on the great 
God who loves you who healed him. He felt it. He touched him. That's what he was doing with this demoniac. People had chained this guy. They'd put him in irons. They were afraid of him, trying to control him. But Jesus would heal and restore him as no one else could. And the disciples must have been shocked. He's talking to this guy. He's touching this man. The demons were exercised, and Mark wrote, they saw the man sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. He wasn't running around screaming anymore day and night, and he wasn't cutting himself with stones anymore. He was sitting at the feet of Jesus. He wasn't running around naked and debased. He was dressed with dignity. And he wasn't out of his mind with torment. He was in the mind that God had given him, his right mind. You know, in a few moments, if I ever get done talking, we're going to have communion together. It's one of the most precious times you'll ever experience in your worship of Jesus. And in those moments today, I hope when you look at that bread and you look at that cup and you hear Pastor Chad lead us through that remembrance, I hope today you'll remember what God has done for you. He who set you free from a bondage greater than you understand. From a power greater than you can even fathom. And he's brought you into the kingdom, his kingdom. You see, that's why Peter, who gave most of what Mark learned of these details, Mark learned most of those from Peter. Peter would write later in his letter, 1 Peter 2, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You know, in many ways, until I see myself as distraught as that demoniac and the Gerasenes, I won't ever fully appreciate what Jesus has really done. This is why it was the same Peter who would later write in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know, people think, well, if I follow Jesus, I won't have any more anxieties. No, they still come. But Peter said, you can cast them all on Jesus because he cares for you. Where did, people learn, where did Peter learn that Jesus cares for people like that? Well, one of the places he learned was on the shore of a demoniac region with a man who was controlled by demonic spirits. Jesus cared for this man. And you may be thinking, well, can God really heal and restore me? Can God really care? I mean, I've known, I've strayed so far, I've done it so wrong so many times. People, he cared enough to help this demoniac. He cared enough to forgive the people who spiked him to a cross. He cared enough to heal and restore a sinful man like me. And that's enough said. But I can tell you today, I owe my life to Jesus. And he wouldn't have done what he did if he didn't care. He who is Lord over the storms, Lord over demons, Lord over disease, Lord over death, controls the wind and the waves and the spirit world, who reigns as Lord over the human realms, can and will and does care about you. That's what this demonic man needed to know. Does anybody care? Yeah, I do, Jesus said. And that's what God did for this man. He healed and restored him, and they commissioned him for his work. 
You see, you find in verse 18 that naturally the man wants to go with Jesus when the other people are driving him out of the region. He says, hey, I want to come with you. And Jesus says, no, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he has had mercy on you. People, if I were to ask you today, who is the first Christian missionary to the Gentiles? You're going to say the Apostle Paul, and you'd be wrong. The first Christian missionary to the Gentiles was a demoniac man who was saved and delivered by Jesus and told to go and tell, go home and tell your fellow Gentiles what the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. How effective was it? Well, it says, it says and God's trying to give me a hint, Larry, it's time to stop. In, verse, in, uh, in Mark 5, in verse 20, so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, a region of 10 cities, how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. Go home, he told them. You wonder how powerfully those words said it on a man who hadn't been home in a long time, who didn't have a home except in the tombs. Go home to your people. Tell them what the Lord has done. Go home to your oikos. It's a word that God gives to every one of us. It means the people we're most familiar with, the people that are next to us, the people we work with, our neighbors, our friends. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. And how he's had mercy on you. Do you know that's how most people come to Jesus today? That's how I was saved. I was thrown into an oikos of a Bible study, and those people reached out and told me what the Lord had done. God can use you to do the same. Because you see, people, God didn't save us just to keep us out of hell. He saved us to become a person in whom he can live, in whom he can continue to do the same work through us, as he did through that man, in helping people to know what the Lord has done and the mercy that he offers for those who believe. How effective was he as a missionary? Well, remember that passage we just read in Mark 7 about the deaf and dumb man? That was in the Decapolis. That's the region where this demoniac man went to testify. So what does Jesus find the next time he goes back to the Decapolis? Some of the same people who wanted him to leave, are now some of the same people that are bringing him this deaf and mute man, believing that this Jesus can do for this man what he did for the demoniac that we heard about. The disciples asked Jesus in the storm, who is this? They asked each other, who is this? The demons told him that day their answer. This is Jesus, the son of the most high God. But the issue, real, real issue wasn't how in the disciples answered or how the, the, the demons answered. The real issue is how do you answer? Because you remember when later on, a little bit later in Mark chapter 8, where Pastor Chad's going to get? They were up in Caesarea Philippi and they're walking around amongst all the idols and Jesus gives them a pop quiz to see how much they'd been learning to chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. And so in chapter 8, he drops a pop quiz on them, and he says, who do the people say I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets that's returned. And Jesus turned around and said, well, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter got it right. You're the Christ, you're the Messiah. 
You're the son of God. You know, there was a time in my life where the, I couldn't have answered that question right. There was a time when the demoniac wouldn't have either, not on his own. But Jesus turned that all around. And people, he's still turning it around for those who will believe and come and ask the simple question, who is this? This is Jesus, the son of the most high God. And when he becomes that Jesus for you, the true one that we worship, the one who's more important than anyone else, the one who lived and died and rose again, who delivers people from sin, who cares for them and loves them, who reigns over every realm. Then when Jesus ever says to us, why are you so afraid? All you have to say is, I'm not, not anymore. Because my life is in the hands of the one who is the Lord. And I know you. And you reign over everything. And you care for me. Father, thank you for these lessons. There's so much more in here, but I'm hoping you'll use this in my life and all of us today to realize that we really are a people much in need of you. And that's why today, while we're here in a spirit of prayer, I just want to ask real quick, if there's some of you here who aren't sure you've ever committed your heart to Christ, not sure you've ever believed, you can ask the Lord into your life today. Just tell him, I know who you are, Lord. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. And I believe you died on the cross for me and rose again. And I want you to come into my life. I want you to save me from my sin. I want to follow you as the Lord of my life. He will hear you and he will come in. Or maybe you're here today and you know, you know, I believed in Jesus a long time. I prayed some prayer years ago, but I'm not living for him. He's not the Lord of my life. Maybe that's a commitment you want to make today. Just to say, Lord, I've lived long enough on my own. I've believed Satan's lie that I could do it without you, but I can't. I don't want idols of money or power or relationships or anything to be in the way. I want you to be the one I worship as supreme above everything. When you come today and make that commitment, Jesus will hear you. You don't need to come forward. You don't need to make a display. You tell God that you want him to be Lord of your life. You tell Jesus that you're ready to follow him as Lord. And he will hear you. And then you ask him every day to lead, and he will. He'll set you free. He'll start replacing those things that need to be replaced. He'll come and take his rightful place. As we come to communion today, let's use this time to remember this Jesus, the one who is Lord of all. Father, thank you that you're so patient and so loving and so caring. Lead Pastor Chad now and the worship team as they lead us. And may we remember you in a way that honors you. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.